Welcome to If You Know Your History on FNR Football Nation Radio. My name is Paul Mavridis and I am joined by a very special guest uh, initially and an even more special guest afterwards, but we'll deal with that later. Uh, Andy Pascalides, who's here to talk about the passing of one of his friends and one of the legends of Australian soccer journalism, John Economis. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, having me on board. Now, you're on the side of the road, so we're just people listening into this, you know, just <laughs> it's all good, he's safe. We've also we've, we've we've had a previous guest on the side of a road as well, so this is not new to us. Um, yeah. But, oh, look, it, it's it's unfortunate in a way that I've got to do it this way, but I'm on the way to do my uh, nightly duties with my 92 year old dad. Yeah. Um, who who brought me into the game um, yeah. all those years ago when I was nine? I had that choice of going to Greek school or football. Incredible, my dad left me with that choice because <laughs> all training was on the same nights as Greek school. And, you know, over the years I've said to him, Dad, if you didn't let me do that, the journey I've taken would not have happened. Wow. So um, I didn't go to uni like all the rest of the family. I was the black sheep. But, um, you know, and that journey it kicked off for me in the media in, in 83, 84 at Australian Soccer Weekly. And this is before the internet and everything else. Um, your staple diet was Soccer Action, Soccer Weekly, once a week. You'd all rush to the news agent on a Tuesday morning and um, – Nine times out of ten, John Scoop, economist, would have uh, the front page, but he had a subtle way of getting that front page. He'd come in when we'd pretty much laid out the front page on a Monday hour and said, guys, guys, stop the presses. I've got a scoop. So, um, yeah, and, and he had a nickname for everyone and um, just a larger-than-life character who, amazing detail, amazing memory. He could remember games, dates, scorers, lineups, and it was like that with a lot of things, not just football. Uh, he was a cricket tragic, um, loved politics. He could tell you all the lines out of every Godfather movie. So <laughs> if you sat down with him, you'd probably have to spend a day just going through that. But, you know, what? he, he used to you, – you look forward to seeing him coming into the uh, press box. And um, he was very close at St. George, obviously. Uh, that's where his, uh, his bestie, Johnny Warren, they went to Cleveland Boys mm-hmm. High School. Uh, not far from where I'm parked, actually. And, um, yeah, he, he served numerous roles with St. George, but he loved going to Marconi, as they nickname it, the Palace, and Arpia Leichhardt. He had a very strong relationship with Tony Rossini, who's uh, one of the longest administrators in football when you look at that. I think it's close to three decades for Tony at Arpia Leichhardt. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a sudden passing. Uh, we haven't heard the autopsy report, but I'm led to believe it was a heart attack. Um, alone at home, um, mm. one relative here, relatives back in Kithira, mm. which is a beautiful island off the Peloponnese coast, which ironically where my mother's from, Neapolis, could, we can see across the bay where the wonderful Kithira is. And he only, he only engaged on that Greek side of his family tree um, in the last 15, 20 years. Um, okay. Yeah, much like a lot of us, I mean, I've only been to Greece three times and I'm 59. And I first went there after the World Cup in Germany 2006, um, which is a shame because, you know, you should be proud of your history. And he always was, um, you know, and, and I, I'm just sad because as these years go on, um, I'm part of that old football, um, like George Danikian, of course, and, you know, guys like Ray Gatt, he re- retired from the Australian newspaper not long ago and, 
John was one of two journalists to be inducted to the FA Hall of Fame. That's that's a fantastic achievement. Uh, John mean, he, he'd, been, he'd been writing for such a long time. He was an editor. Yeah. He wrote across a number of publications, but no, most notably, obviously, the Greek Herald and the Australian Cycle Weekly. Yeah. He, I mean, your, your tribute to him notes how well-loved he was among the biggest names in world football. Oh, yeah. But also, what was great about reading about on Twitter was just the outpouring of um, condolences and memories from people online from the Australian soccer community. Um, I oh, saw Mark Fosley, Jim Fozzie's um, tribute as well. I mean, yeah. that's how much he, impact he had. You know the thing with John too, and it's a rare trait, let's be honest, it's a rare trait. Um, he would have the confidence of players and coaches and what they would tell him a lot of times would have been a great story to break but out of respect and courtesy for them, knowing that he wants to keep that relationship going because um, you don't want to just get a, a story, put it on the front page, burn your bridges, and, and that's it. John was the reverse of that. And he'd always, you know, his, his stories were not, he never wrote about personal issues uh, or issues with players or coaches or match officials or anyone in the game that might have done the wrong thing away from football. It was all about promoting the game. It mm. was all about, you know, giving his slant. And 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 the thing was, you know how we would do interviews, like you do interviews now on this show, it might be 10 minutes with someone. John, when he would engage with someone, I've seen it, it wouldn't be like a 10-minute conversation. He would be there three or four cups of coffee later. Two hours later, people are going, oh, geez, time's flown. Off we go. But he had that presence about him. You know, he was very infectious. Um, there's no one that's going to say a bad word about John Economist at all. Uh, as much as he went to university and he, he could have forged a career um, at the top end of town, uh, his passion was football. And uh, that's why he, he he moved away from that sort of corporate world and focused primarily on football. And there was there was one comment from a guy in Melbourne who used to put an ad for his pub, and he wrote the comment. It was, I can't. Peter, uh, what's his surname? T R I N H, I think, was his surname. Yeah, Peter Trin. Yeah, but he said, you know what? I didn't really follow football that much. I loved having the ad in there because it got me business. Mm. Yeah, as my pub was reacting to those advertisements. So it just goes to show you, even though that paper was published out of Sydney, it was a national uh, publication. Yeah. You know, and and it was a very, very important tool for us because you've got to remember, say, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, our staple diet football-wise, pre-SBS, was the ABC match of the day on a Monday night. Yeah. That's it. Mm. That's all we had. Mm. We didn't have pretty much anything else. When I was a kid growing up as well, it was really bizarre, but I used to see Bundesliga highlights yeah. on Channel 10 yeah. on a Saturday morning before I'd go and play. Mm. My grassroots football at 12, 13, 14 years of age, I'd be diving around the lounge wanting to replicate what those Germans were doing. Um, but, yeah, there's a legacy there with John. You know, he he, he impacted so many. Um, his passion was second to none. Really, And, what, and in that era, you, I mean, I mean, it's not that you don't have your passion now as a, as a football writer, obviously, that you still need it to do it, but it's not an easy gig. Yeah. But back in those days when everything was done by hand on like antique equipment and when you're the only people, like, you know, people like Larry Schwab in Melbourne and, you know, yeah. people up in Sydney, it's like if you don't do it, nobody else will and there's nowhere else to get the information from. 
Well, you're right. You know, you just mentioned Laurie. Laurie, again, you know, what a great servant he was. Um, you know, you got Laurie, Peter DeSera, Alan Crisp, Tom McCain from Adelaide. There were so many of those John Economist-like figures that were at the, you know, it was like they were at the front of the battle and we all followed them. We mm. all came through the system and they were the leaders, you know, and you've got to remember in those times our game was being pushed into the, you know, the, 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 the dark spaces of sports pages, you know, mm. little column you know, story about the Socceroos playing as against a groin injury for Jezelenko on the back page. So that was a battle in itself. And guys like John were in the forefront of that battle. And what it does for people like myself and others, I think it actually gives you confidence that what you're doing for football, don't give up on it, you know, keep pushing it. You're going to find barriers pushing forward. I've found barriers. Um, yeah. I'll, but I'll, see, I was blessed. I, I went from Soccer Weekly into radio with 2GB. And John used to laugh because the first time they crossed to me, I was actually covering a Sheffield Shield final and I called the, the last hour. And the, the, the guy crossing to me couldn't pronounce my name. And he goes, oh, look, can I just call you Alphabet? Why don't you shorten your name, Andy? And I was like, that's my name. I mean, yeah. multicultural Australia is proud of its history and it's a rich, rich mix of people of multicultural background, but we're, we are Australian. We're born here, but we're proud of whether we're Greek, Croatian, Serbian, whatever it is, you're going to be proud of that background because that's, that's your parents, your grandparents, and that's their history. And John, John was actually, I think someone asked me the other week, was he born in Greece? No, no, he was, he was born during a war uh, in Queensland, Rockhampton. Oh, wow. Yeah. So dinky die, Economist Aussie. It's interesting. I mean, we, we, we talked a little bit before about Rossidi and Marconi and all the old school kind of scene. It's, I was thinking about what the passing of someone like John signifies, and that's kind of, the, again, another break with that era where the environment, the way the stadiums were, the way the crowds were, the way the leagues were, that the, the, the difference, the gaps between journalists and administrators and players and fans were much closer. You know, oh, you'd, you'd, you'd come into contact with these people walking around the grounds and we just don't have that anymore. So oh, when you read someone like John's work or Laurie's work, you're not just getting someone who's sitting in a press box. You're getting someone who mingled, who was known. Oh, you, you, you know, and I've been there and done it a, a number of times and, and, and with John and a few other guys, you'd, you'd cover a game at Marconi and you wouldn't get home till 10 o'clock. You'd go back to the club and evaluate the game and, and the, you know, presidents, coaches would want to hear his, his thoughts on what, what had just unfolded in that 90 minutes at Marconi Stadium. You know, one of the great things that John's really proud about, and a lot of people wouldn't know, when the New York Cosmos came out with Pele, they played a game not far from here at the back of the Sydney Cricket Ground. It was the old sports ground. Yeah. And John was involved in marketing that game. It was that big, the fans broke down fences because mm. it was a sellout. Uh, I've forever been trying to find footage of that. It's got to be somewhere. I would think maybe the ABC archives. But John reported on that and said, I've never seen anything like it. It wasn't a riot per se. It was just people wanted to see the cosmos because of Pele. Mm. And we, there was no way you could control the crowd. Once they broke down a fence, 
everyone just and they sat on the inside of the ground as well. Security couldn't control them, but they were well behaved. There was not, you know, like unfortunately with our game, you might have a an ethnic rivalry and there's a bit of a, a riot, dare I say, and there's two or three people arrested, and it becomes front page, second page, third page, radio, television, newspapers, online. When you get 60 or 70 arrests at a one-day cricket game, it's on page 12 over two paragraphs or three paragraphs. Um, that's always been one of his bugbears, the way the game's been treated by the, the mainstream media True. because there are particular groups or individuals that want to find any excuse to put us down. And you would have seen it yourself first sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's quite sad that obviously John's passed away, but we celebrate a life well lived and a life in service to the game. Um, can we get a bit of an update as well from yourself about the uh, heartbeat of football work that you do and where that's at at the yeah. moment? Look, um, it's been an interesting year. We've had, I just got a report from Queensland, a teenager was saved. Wow. And I'm contacting the gentleman who saved him because I've been talking to Queensland before they had their big announcement last week about rolling out DFibs. Uh, we'd identified 20 clubs in the greater Brisbane area without DFibs. But what I can tell you now with my calculations, Seven players have suffered cardiac arrest this year. Five in New South Wales. Jess Amato at the indoor centre there down at um, where the Grand Prix is. Mm. Is, it, is it a Ted Whitten indoor centre there? Is that what it's called? Oh, I'm not sure what they call it. The well, Jess was there and they had a defib, but they couldn't find it. Oh, wow. And he was saved by an off-duty um, uh, first aider, a, a policeman, actually. So we had five in New South Wales, one in Queensland, one in Melbourne. And in five of those seven incidents, the defibrillator was used with CPR to save them. And that's all I want. I want every club to have this life-saving device. I've gone to federal parliament. I got knocked back. I got told it's a state-by-state issue. But look at John Aaron, what he did. He was the first politician. He rolled out $3.8 million in defibs. And New South Wales followed fairly quickly. The new deputy premier, Stuart Ayres, so I'm part of that whole group with Greg Page from the Wiggles and a, a few other individuals. So all we want, you know, and all the football family or the greater sporting public want, when your husband, your brother, your sister, your mother, your auntie, your uncle goes to a game on a Saturday or Sunday, all we expect is have a great day, but we want to see them come home. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we actually did a whole episode on um deaths on the football field, on the Australian football field. And, you know, when you go back to the early part of the 20th century and you see the newspaper reports, it's, it's things like, you know, tetanus um, or other things that for now we take for granted. You know, it's easy to sort out. But mm. you know, as you move on through the 1960s, you see stories of player collapsed. Yeah. Um, and it's not hard to find those stories and it's really tragic. Uh, and knowing that we have the tools at our disposal to try and avoid those situations is, it makes it feel like it's imperative to get it done. It, it has to be. It should be mandatory. There should be, you know, the governing bodies have got to do more in this space. I've got to be honest. I think they can do more. What I've been doing with Heartbeat of Football, creating this amazing awareness, um, Football Federation Victoria, you know, Kim on and Anthony are very supportive of, of what we're doing. We're looking at going national next year. It's sort of been held back because of the COVID. Um, we're looking at getting some funding. We don't have government funding, but what I can tell you with our testing this year up until, and we do it with Victor Chen. So we'd take your 
blood sample, we tell you your cholesterol and your blood sugar levels, and we take your blood pressure as well. Yeah. We found 38% of people tested this year were advised to go to their GP for further checkups. Mm. That's up from 25%. So mm. all this inactivity, when all these players go back next year, um, particularly the senior players, wouldn't it be great if over 35 players to play before they could register have to show us that they've been to their GP? Well, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the thing, Andy. I mean, we thought about the problem that soccer has, particularly as a unique quality, is it, it's going to have a lot more older players than the other football coaches. Absolutely. It's just the nature of the game. That's what and, the numbers are. You know, when I started uh, from 2014 to 16, there was 15 deaths and three saves. From 2016 to 19, there were three deaths and 15 saves. Mm. Now, late last year, we had three deaths. Mm. This year, we've had seven incidents. All have been saved. Mm. That's a, a stunning turnaround, but there is a fear factor. Uh, talking to the Heart Foundation and Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute, the fear factor is the effect of covid on footballers as well, and anyone with any heart-related issues. When you hear about people passing because of uh, related issues, you know, underlying issues, but a lot of it's lung or heart. Yeah. If COVID gets you and you've got issues there, you're in big trouble. Mm. Um, so there's a lot to do in the education and the awareness. Mm. Um, our, our, our rule mantra next year will be testing, education, awareness, and keep chipping away. We're blessed. We've got people like Tim Kale. Uh, I noticed that John Aloisi is an ambassador for the Heart Foundation, which is brilliant. A lot of people wouldn't know. We've had Socceroos um, have had heart surgery. Mm. Mark Kuzis, mm. Chris Galantis, John Aloisi. I mean, heart disease is the biggest killer. Yeah. It's the biggest killer. And unfortunately, the younger ones that we lose, in, in most instances, like look at Kiki Numov, he had to quit after signing in Spain, after leaving Sydney FC, he had cardiomyopathy, which is a genetic issue that you don't know until it's too late in many cases. So then all the siblings get checked. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult journey, but, you know, like for me, I lost a mate of mine on the field next to me. Um, that triggered me. I'd lost another mate that was playing with Peter Catholicis' team and Terry Patalis, two ex-Sydney Olympic players, John Ennis. I, I played with him, again, a kilometre away. I played with him representative football. He died in front of his father and friends. They were trying to bring him back and his father was on the field. They put a chair there for his father and he was screaming to the clouds in Greek, God, take me, don't take my son. He was shrieking that for five solid minutes. And, you know, I talked to widows. I talked to families that have lost loved ones. You know, one guy thought he had heartburn for four weeks. He was getting Alka-Seltzer. Was, it was the onset of a heart attack coming, and they lost him. So there's lots to do in the education awareness in this space. Um, I'm glad that, um, you know, the A-League, Every club has a defib. Every game cannot start without a defib. But it wasn't always the case for the W League. Mm. That was only a recent thing where the defib has to be there with the fourth official. Um, and that'll become an issue when we talk to our next guest, Greg Downs. We're running out of time, Andy. Thanks for your time. Talk about John Economist and Thank obviously you. your heartbeat of football. We really appreciate it.